Good afternoon, uh, good morning, good evening, uh, wherever you are. Uh, this is the Middle East Institute. Uh, we have the pleasure uh, today to host this new book talk uh, at the Institute, uh, a new book talk uh, on this book here, Charity in uh, Saudi Arabia, Civil Society under Authoritarian, under Authoritarianism, uh, published by Cambridge University Press uh, this last month. Uh, and uh, we have here the author, Nora Derval, uh, who will be with us for the next hour to discuss uh, this book. We have also uh, Dr. Jesse Moritz, who will be uh, dis the discussant uh, for the book. Before uh, introducing the, the, the book itself, let me say a few words on our two uh, speakers. Uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, <clears throat> Derval is a postdoctoral at, a fellow at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She previously held a postdoctoral fellowship at the American University of Cairo, as well as visiting positions at the King Faisal uh, Center for Research in Islamic Studies in Riyadh at the Efat University, King Abdelaziz University in Jeddah. In uh, 2017, she earned her PhD in Islamic Studies from Freie Universität, Universität my apologies for my German, uh, in Berlin. And uh, she's currently pursuing two research projects, one on the investigation into 19th century travel practices and travel writing about the Arabian Peninsula, and another one on Saudi-Palestinian relations in the first half of the 20th century. After listening to uh, uh, Dr. Derbal's presentation, we we'll leave the floor to Dr. Jessie Moritz, who will offer her own comments uh, on the book. Uh, Dr. Moritz, <clears throat> is joining us right now from Australia. She's a lecturer at the Australian National University. She previously held a postdoctoral research fellow at the Transregional Institute at Princeton University, as well as several visiting fellow positions uh, at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies as well in Riyadh, in the Gulf Studies Program at Qatar University and the Institute for Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, she received her PhD from the Australian National University and her most recent, most recent research projects examine the transition to renewable energy in the oil rich states of the Arabian Peninsula and the development of satire in Saudi Arabia. Let me now, uh, before we move to uh, uh, our first speaker, Dr. Derba, let me say a few words uh, on the book itself. And as the title uh, suggests, this is a, a book about charities in Saudi Arabia, so uh, non-profit organizations dedicated to uh, uh, the fight against poverty uh, and uh, helping communities, in particular women or uh, children. And we follow in this book, uh, Dr. Derbal, who studied for almost a decade several of these organizations, and mostly those that she cover here are based in Jeddah. Uh, let me say uh, from the start that this is truly a fascinating reading. Uh, I'm the moderator here, uh, not the reviewer, so I can already share uh, my, uh, my remarks, my thoughts on the book. And there are several reasons why we wanted to have this book talk. And I think the first one, and this is the, maybe the most important one, this is a book which is not about Mohammed bin Salman, which is not about Riyadh, which is not about the all the big topics that we see these days in the, the big newspapers or in the publishers that uh, are focusing mostly on uh, the high level uh, politics. This is a book that discusses uh, important political issues and sometimes very sensitive as we will be uh, discussing, but it discusses the politi politics from Saudi Arabia from below. Uh, it discusses uh, the politics in Saudi Arabia from the grassroots level. So we'll discover here many things and uh, sometimes very unexpected things about the, the, the country. And like many people, I guess, uh, you will discover that uh, there is actually a civil society in uh, Saudi Arabia, contrary to the, uh, the, the perception, the assumption that we may have about that. The second thing which I think is very important and why we have this conversation is that this is a book that discusses the management or uh, the relief of poverty. And this is also something that goes away from the glitter, which is associated with uh, Gulf countries. We're not here uh, discussing uh, big politics in fancy hotels, but we are here following uh, associations, nonprofit organizations that struggle to help the marginalized uh, population. 
And here, I think for people that in Singapore may not know a lot about Saudi Arabia, this may come as a big paradox. How comes that a country that has such immense oil reserves uh, has this issue of poverty? And this is also something that we will be probably discussing. And finally, let me say that this is a great book of investigation. We follow here uh, in many details the author uh, through her different visits to uh, the, the kingdom. Uh, I think it starts in the late 2000s and uh, eventually in 2020. And you can see through the descriptions of these uh, different visits, the evolution uh, for bad or uh, for good or bad reasons of the country. Uh, and this is also something that uh, is uh, one of the reasons, uh, not just to hear uh, this book talk, but uh, uh, to, uh, to go uh, buy the book after that. Uh, there are other many reasons why we, uh, we wanted to host this talk, but I'll stop here. And I'll now uh, turn to uh, Nora Derval for her own, uh, um, her own presentations. And maybe if you can say, uh, to start probably with the most obvious questions, is, which is why you started uh, working on uh, Saudi charities. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jean-Luc, uh, for this invitation. And let me really, like, first of all, take the time to thank you, because um, this is the very first time that I'm talking about the book since uh, it has been published uh, this summer. Um, and I'm thrilled to do so. And I'm particularly thrilled that Jesse is with us here um, because you might have seen in the book, I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm very curious to hear your, com um, your comments uh, on the book. And I am very grateful that you took the time to engage with the scholarship. And also let me thank um, all of you who are here today, uh, who take the time and tune in and listen, please really feel free to make this a conversation that covers your perspectives. Um, bring in your, your views, your questions, your perspective. We will make this about, um, I, we decided to make this really a conversation rather than a ready prepared talk. I'm not going to read a talk to you here. And this also goes to those who might see the recording in the future. Um, if you read the book and you have a question um, or you want to engage uh, because you do research on the Arabian Peninsula or you cover um, similar or different perspectives, with regard to Islamic charity, sent me an email and I'm very happy to engage. What I want to do here, um, like first I'll answer Jean-Luc's question, why the book and how I came to write it. And then I want to point out some um, of the major empirical findings or conclusions that I draw here. So why the book? Um, there are many reasons, um, but I want to narrow it down to two for now. So first, um, this is a book about everyday Islam in Saudi Arabia. And I think with this, the book really makes an intervention because Saudi Arabia stylizes itself, it stages itself as the ideal Islamic state. It is the home to the holiest sites of Islam. And many books have dealt with Islam or versions of Islam in Saudi Arabia, but they mostly cover a top-down state perspective. We have so many books about Islam, um, religious radicals, Wahhabism, um, but very few people know what Saudis and non-Saudis in Saudi Arabia, how they, uh, what, what is their access to their religion and how Islam is lived. It is, so my book is a book about everyday forms of Islam in Saudi Arabia. And this really makes a difference because when we think of the state Islam, uh, Saudi Islam is portrayed as rigid, static, dominated by old men, Think of the religious establishment and it is uncompromising and by contrast i show through the lens of charity which is one of the five pillars of islam the zakat the annual islamic um, uh, donation i show through this lens of charity that islam in saudi arabia is um, elastic um, that it is subject to interpretation and that saudis find in islam above all a worldly guide and this the strength of this guide of this moral compass um, and ethical frame really becomes visible when these values that Saudis find in Islam when they contradict the values of the nation state and to give you an example when it comes to monitoring um, some um, believers some Muslims emphasize that in Islam, for the sake of the dignity of the beneficiaries, alms are better given 
anonymously. But the nation state wants to monitor, and especially in the wake of um, the war, the so-called war against terrorism, um, Saudis were mandated to, to, to really openly show how, how and to whom and when they give charity. Um, but Saudis continue to, to really question that and to navigate these, on the one hand, um, policies enforced upon them by the nation state. And on the other hand, their, their own interpretation and understanding of what Islam mandates from them. Um, and there, there are other examples that I could give here, but I want to, I want to come to, my, to the second reason why I think um, that motivated me to write this book. The book deals with the question of civil society in Saudi Arabia, and that is admittedly an old question. But I approach this old question from a new perspective, which is this bottom-up view that I give. Um, now, you could still ask, but why, why, again, civil society? It is such an, an old frame that has been taken out again and again. But I do think it is important um, to work with this old frame. First, because it is when I started interviewing about charity, Saudis spoke to me about civil society. So it was really something that I found in the field. I asked and I kept going back to, to charity and my interlocutors kept responding that they perceived themselves as part of Saudi civil society. And the other reason is that working with the frame of civil society allows a comparative perspective we can compare this question of civil society under authoritarianism. Here we can compare Saudi Arabia with Egypt, with Syria, but also with China, with Russia. And I think this is really important because we tend to exceptionalize and exoticize the Gulf countries and particularly Saudi Arabia. And I'm one of those, and I'm, I'm not the only one who really wants to move beyond this exceptionalizing discourse. Um, and I can, I can just point to the book Beyond Exception um, from, uh, written uh, by Amelie Le Renard and Ahmed Khan, I think, and Neha Vora. And I'm, I, they're not the only ones, I'm not the only ones, but I think in mainstream discourse, the tendency is still to, to exceptionalize Saudi Arabia. And my book really speaks against this exceptionalization. Okay, so how did I, um, how, did I come to write the book? And because this is a book talk, I want to actually read from the book. Um, so this is the book, I think Jean-Luc has showed it, and I'm going to read a passage from the introduction. My research in Saudi Arabia began at a time of heightened activism in the civic sphere. On the eve of the annual Islamic pilgrimage, the Hajj, on November 25th in 2009, heavy rainfall flooded the city of Jeddah, the gate to Mecca. At the time, I was a visiting student at King Abdul Aziz University in Jeddah, which is Jeddah's largest public university. It was the first day of the Hajj holiday and no students were on campus when the area was flooded. In the impoverished neighborhoods in the south and east of Jeddah, however, houses built from poor quality materials collapsed under the mud carried by the water currents. Bridges and electricity lines fell Cars and buses were carried away by, the wave, by waves of mud. I spent the first days of the Hajj holiday couch surfing in Jeddah with my boyfriend. He had come to Saudi Arabia for the vacation. Our host, a Saudi citizen with Iraqi roots, who was in his mid-30s, lived in a spacious villa in the north of the city. He lived at home with his parents, four younger siblings, a driver, a gardener, and a maid, and he invited us to stay with him while his parents were gone for the pilgrimage. He was keen to host us because he had never been approached before by couch surfers, though he himself couch surfed around the world. But he feared that his parents would not approve because of our non-marital relationship. Eventually his parents, of course, they found out, uh, they met us and approved nonetheless. Together with our host, in the family parlor, we followed the devastation on TV and on social media. The Jeddah floods, Suyul Jeddah, were all over the headlines. Local newspapers stressed the fact that Jeddah, nicknamed the Bride of the Sea, Arus al-Bahar, had drowned in what seemed a relatively small amount of water. Out of disbelief and curiosity, our host drove his jeep to the south and east of the city 
to see the sites of the flooding with his own eyes. He shot pictures and shot video clips of the flooded streets, impoverished neighborhoods and families navigating this urban tragedy. Later in his living room, he shared the footage with us and his online followers, and he was not the only one to do so. So I think this passage really shows that I stumbled in, um, in, into um, fieldwork because even after Hatch holidays, King Abdelaziz University was still closed. And so I followed my, my classmates at the time to do um, volunteer work for the flood victims. And so we met at the Jeddah Chamber, um, so we met at the Jeddah Center for Forums and Exhibitions, um, where the Jeddah Chamber of Commerce and Industry had set up a volunteer space. And now bear with me, I'm going to throw a lot of detail onto you, but it is important to later draw some, uh, to understand some of the conclusions that I draw. So we were, we all as volunteers, we gathered in the volunteer space uh, set up in these exhibition halls under um, the Gender Chamber of Commerce and Industries. And this had been organized by a lady, um, a Saudi called Fatin Bundakji, who was a member of the Gender Chamber of Commerce and Industry, but she was also a member of the grassroots organization Muatana. And Muatana means citizenship and is uh, a short form, an acronym um, here. Muatana was established around 2007 um, and took the lead because some members of Muatana, when they saw um, the flood catastrophe on social media on TV, they began collecting donations. At the same time, there was an employee at a bank called um, Riyadh Zahrani, who established a Facebook group um, called the People's Campaign for the Contribution to the Rescue of the City of Jeddah. And under this Facebook group, other organizations like Muwatana, but also the Jamiat Khairiya, the traditional welfare associations, met and they all came together in, um, in this exhibition hall in early December 2009 to organize some form of, um, of collective and organized and directed uh, relief services. So, what this episode and these details really show is. Um, is that Saudi civil society, it becomes visible at certain times. And 2009 with the Jeddah floods was a time of heightened visibility. But I saw in, in 2020 at the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, that was for example, another such moment where suddenly civil society became really visible. But just because it is not visible at times in between, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. With the example of the 2009 floods and the details that I just tried to point out shows is that there are a lot of different actors that work in civil society. There are formal registered organizations like the Jamiat Khairiya, and there are informal non-registered organizations like Muatana. And these different organizations, they're connected through, um, through personal networks and personal networks that go into what I call horizontal linkages. And I think they are really a key element of, um, of civil society under authoritarianism, at least in the Saudi context. And here it would be interesting to see, for example, how it is in other authoritarian contexts. Um, what the example also shows the Jeddah floods is that the, um, that the relationship with the state is complex. Because organizations like Muatana, they are not registered and they don't want to be registered with the state. They operate in a legal gray zone, but they do so in plain sight of state authorities. So the state could follow what was going on in um, this exhibition hall. Um, and it did so and was tolerant of practices that really went against norms. For example, norms at the time that did not allow the, the mixing and mingling of unmarried men and women. What, this, what all of this shows is that things, starting from our couch-surfing host with his Iraq, Iraqi roots, but who is a proud Saudi citizen, shows us that things in Saudi Arabia, they're more complex. When we go, when we move on to the ground, things are really complex and complicated. And I think this is really why it is worth engaging with um, um, with the question of state society relations and civil society from a bottom up view. 
So let me just to, to end this because I, we want to give time um, to, to Jesse. Um, let me read uh, a key passage from the conclusion because I think it really, this is really the main conclusion that I draw from the work. Since the ascension of King Salman to the throne in 2015, Saudi society has entered an era of fundamental political, social, and economic change. Um, but nevertheless, as many have, have shown or tried to argue, it is also a time of heightened, um, heightened repression. My hope is that this book has shown that this does not mean, however, that Saudi Arabia has no civil society or that civil society in Saudi Arabia is weak or dead because of the limitations imposed by the authoritarian regime. By contrast, I suggest the ability to compromise and to negotiate in the shifting frames of reference, fluidity and spontaneity should be seen as signs of strength and resilience of Saudi civil society, a civil society under authoritarianism. At the heart, the debate about civil society in Saudi Arabia is about the difference between agency and sovereignty. Saudi Arabia is a country in which the population profoundly lacks popular sovereignty. Yet I hope to have shown with this book that ordinary men and women in Saudi Arabia, young and old, social activists, philanthropists, and social workers, Saudis and non-Saudis, they do have agency. Thank you very much, uh, Nora. And uh, we'll, we'll have a lot of things to, uh, to unpack here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll turn right away to, uh, to Jesse, uh, and then we'll come back for, um, uh, for uh, the, the broader discussion. But Jesse, floor is yours. Thank you so much. And I do apologize if there's any construction noise in the background. There was a big concert on the weekend at the ANU, at the Australian National University, and they're packing up all of the um, concert equipment in the background. Um, but I want to thank uh, both you, Jean-Loup, and you, Nora, for giving me the opportunity to participate and to, first of all, get a copy of this excellent book, um, which I'm reading with great interest. Um, and, and second, to have an opportunity to consider where does this book fit in uh, the political science literature and the literature on authoritarian politics and civil society and authoritarian spaces. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm really blown away by the, the depth of the research. You've done a fantastic uh, job, uh, Nora. It's very theoretically rigorous as well. And I think the book is really well positioned. It's capturing these issues of how do voluntary associations and charity organizations function on the ground and but it's capturing them in a way that I think can actually speak to the political science literature because some of these ideas around um, everyday life in Saudi Arabia are captured by other disciplines but rarely do they actually manage to actually speak to kind of mainstream political science literature which remains really focused on certain types of political associations and certain types of associational life to its detriment I think. Um, so uh, I really think this book is well positioned to contribute to that debate. It's also really impressive the range of data um, that this book gets into. So there's your own experience on the ground volunteering, um, but you're also tracking very carefully individual experiences over time and the fact that you were able to go back and do follow up interviews with um, interviewees is really, it's not easy to access these communities. So I really um, commend from managing to uh, establish and maintain those relationships over time. Um, this is not an easy region of the world in which to do field work. So it's one reason why we don't always get this type of really interesting on the ground data. But you are also engaging with government official narratives and tracking programs and really placing the associations activities into a broader context of what does this mean for the treatment of poverty in Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, and you even went into um, a couple of the, um, like the uh, Masamir uh, uh, film, uh, satirical kind of comedy film and things like that, and, um, which I find really fascinating. And I'm, I'm currently hoping to work more on that at the moment. So I think what you managed to do in the book is really capture this diversity of associational life in Saudi Arabia and in Jeddah specifically. And I think focusing on that sub-regional um, area uh, of, of Saudi Arabia, as Jean-Luc has pointed to, is a really valuable thing to do to get away from the, um, not only from the Riyadh-centric 
um, nature of political analysis on um, Saudi Arabia, but also to get really deep into Jeddah. Um, you're naming specific streets and really identifying. This really helps to helps us to visualize how does you know these levels of development function and this experience of development work in particular neighborhoods, and therefore how does this affect the ways in which these associations are responding to those development issues. So um, uh, I also thought one excellent um, thing that the book did was you were very reflective about the reality of doing ethnographic fieldwork in contemporary Saudi Arabia. So there was one footnote that really made me laugh, which was when you were doing an interview with um, beneficiaries, then they were being asked their opinion on um, what they thought of a particular program while the director of the program was kind of sitting in the office next door listening to everything that they said and that often is the reality for when we're trying to collect this type of data um, and the fact that you're very honest and clear about that is fantastic so I don't want to take up too much time I want to try and um, hand it over for questions quickly but I'll just quickly try and summarize I think three really important contributions that I think this book makes and maybe they're sort of food for thought for the Q&A so the first is that I think this book is well positioned to challenge some of the prejudices of political science in terms of how we think about civil society and associational life in really highly repressive authoritarian contexts. The first, which we've kind of already mentioned, is in terms of the expectations about what civil society is going to look like, how it's going to function, etc. So you really highlighted the ways in which Saudi citizens can be quite creative in how they collaborate and, um, and uh, join together. And also a level of tolerance on behalf of uh, otherwise really highly repressive regimes for that activity. And that's not unique to Saudi Arabia. It's definitely been documented in the case of China um, as well, but it's really valuable to uh, document it in Saudi Arabia. The other expectation I thought it was really interesting um, that you brought out was this expectation that civil society will be pro-democratic. Um, and you provide an analysis of the Majid society, which of course is sort of more of a pro-government, pro-regime civil society. But does that mean that they're co-opted and passive and they're just an extension of the state? No, you make you clearly evidence why um, they should be considered, or at least they perceive themselves to be part of these non-governmental um, environment. And I'll come to the relationship in the state in a second, because I think that's your second key contribution. I also think you managed to kind of capture the spont you call it the spontaneous and fluid ways in which youth can organize in these types of environments with the um, YIG um, and this agency of youth pushing its social boundaries as well as that is in itself sort of an inherently political act um, in this environment with the hikers. Um, it also, I think, helps to contribute to our understanding of the everyday experience of Islam. And I think you kind of highlighted that that was one of your key focuses was in challenging this very top down. I mean, lots of papers have been written on Saudi Arabia saying, well, the Grand Council of Ulama said that protest was un-Islamic and that's why there were no protests in Saudi Arabia. And your book really quite thoroughly um, challenges that experience of Islam and talks about how the utilization of an Islamic frame can help to create legitimacy for associational practices, but it doesn't necessarily mean that religion is going to be the driving kind of function and motivation of these organizations. There's really a lot more going on under the surface. So the second key theme is the relationship between the state and volunteering associations. Um, I really think that um, one of the fruitful kind of ways forward for um, I've been working on this myself, trying to understand how do we conceptualize pro-government groups in, in the Arabian Peninsula, but more broadly in authoritarian societies. Um, and partly you've highlighted that there's this tolerance for unregistered societies in practice, but also you really go into depth in the book on what does it mean to have royal patronage um, of these associations? And does that mean that you have been co-opted by the state? And one thing, uh, it, it overlaps quite well, I think with, um, with research that I found in other Gulf countries, um, such as in, in Bahrain, for example, where I was also interviewing pro-government associations where the opposition said, oh, they're all co-opted, they're just part of the government. But when I went and actually interviewed them, they said exactly what um, a number of your uh, interviewees in charities said, which is, no, we really do see ourselves as civil society. And yeah, we've got the patronage and that gives us legitimacy, but it doesn't shape necessarily our, tech, uh, our activities day to day. 
And this has also again been found in research in other contexts that having patronage can create both this sort of distance, um, sort of a legitimacy with the state, but also a distance from it and a sort of a freedom um, to pursue your own activities. And I think you capture that really well and you pick up on other theorists who found that really well. Um, so the last thing I wanna suggest, the last theme is this um, shift towards institutionalizing and kind of centralizing control and regulating this charity and associational space. Um, and it's one of the things that's the advantage of this book is that you've been covering this for 10 years, so you can really track pre and post 2015 developments. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you brought out some quite, um, at least to me, uh, interesting impacts of that institutionalization or the centralization, whatever you want to call it, increasing control over these associations. And one of them is the professionalization can be detrimental to certain forms of this voluntary activism, where otherwise before they were quite fluid, whereas now you're pointing out that, for example, in the, uh, the first case study that um, the members were complaining that, well, now people who volunteer for this association, they're just doing it, you know, they want to be paid, they want to have these discrete tasks that they're asked to do, and they don't just kind of have that sort of self-driven motivation. Um, and the other thing is that there's this um, the pressure for transparency can conflict with this wish to try and keep beneficiaries and sponsors anonymous. Um, and, uh, and I thought that the focus on that impact of the 2015 NGO law is clearly key throughout the book. Um, and it's really crucial to get our understanding of the impact of this law right, because it's not just Saudi Arabia where there has been this increasing attempt to institutionalize volunteerism. This is occurring across the Gulf. Um, and it's created an interesting paradox, really, that these Gulf governments, usually as part of diversification plans, have tried to empower the youth, but in a very specific and state-controlled way. And I think one of the real um, contributions of this book is that you're really able to capture on the ground how the creative ways in which people can form these associations can create um, can allow them to continue to uh, pursue these activities even uh, even in the sort of wake of that law and even in the wake of because you know the government is both trying to say we want more people to form volunteer associations and also kind of creating these difficulties in terms of how they're registered and the activities that they're allowed to do and the extent of government supervision. If I can make one final quick comment um, just going back to that idea of um, <clears throat> of the relationship between the state and these organizations. The other thing that really struck me is that we do often take this assumption within political science that the state is one thing. And one of the most productive directions that I think is starting to occur in, in political science of these countries is starting to look at subnational contestation. Um, so the fact that, for example, in the Jeddah floods, the volunteer organizations were criticizing local government, but being quite a bit more careful about what they said about uh, senior royals or the fact that you could have a patronage of one royal, but that doesn't prevent you from criticizing another part of government. Understanding the government as this actually quite diverse um, and shifting actor in itself helps us to understand the efficacy of these organizations when they are trying to push for particular reforms. So I'll leave it there. I just want to congratulate you again um, on uh, the publication of this excellent book. And I really look forward, um, I look forward to reading it again more slowly because I did have to uh, read quite quickly over the last couple of days. And I'm really interested to hear what others have to say in the discussion. Thank you very much, JC. And uh, before we, uh, we move to uh, uh, the, the Q&A, let me uh, uh, tell our uh, participants that if you have a question, you can uh, send it uh, through the chat box to MEI events uh, that uh, will uh, gather the, the questions and then I'll, uh, I will uh, address them. I will uh, ask them directly uh, in uh, the webinar. Uh, but let me take the privilege of being the moderator to uh, ask you uh, uh, one or two questions, Nora, and that, that relates to a uh, to uh, some of the comments of Jesse, because one thing which I found very interesting in your book is 
as I said, and as we said here, this is politics from below. So you go through these organizations, you're at the level of the uh, individuals uh, in Jeddah. It starts around the late 2000s and we, uh, we end in 2020, 21 with the COVID pandemic. What's interesting is that even though we are on the ground in Jeddah, we still see the influence of external factors, of international politics, of politics uh, in the kingdom. And two things where I, I wanted to ask you about, this is covered in the book, uh, but I'd like to, uh, to, uh, to discuss it here. First is the, the impact of the so-called war on terror on these organizations, because as, as you say, and for many people, and I include myself, when we hear the words charities, Saudi Arabia, I mean, usually, unfortunately, equals uh, um, uh, financing terrorism. That's the shortcut that a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, do. But And you address that in the book uh, to explain uh, the constraints, uh, how that impacted uh, these organizations. So uh, could you tell us maybe a, a few words uh, on that, uh, about how the war on terror uh, influenced, shaped the discussion on charities. And the second thing, uh, which is also an external factor, which is Saudi vision, Saudi vision 2030. And you explain in the book that uh, in many times the, uh, the, the, the Saudi vision explains that it wants to foster a vibrant, a vibrant society. I think that's the, the terminology which is used. Uh, but you explain the paradox here that there's more control of these organizations at the same time. So uh, what was your takeaway in your last trips uh, to Saudi Arabia on the evolution of uh, these organizations and how they positioned themselves vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Saudi vision? How difficult, how maybe a paradox this is of this, uh, uh, this big plan of vibrant society and at the same time more control over it. So yeah, two, factors uh, influencing the charities. Thank you. Um, so when it comes to these international influences on Saudi Arabia, let me start by saying that Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula is often portrayed as this enclosed space that is somewhat um, separate and distant from um, developments in the world. And there I was really struck, and this was before already before the introduction of tourist visa and um, before Vision 2030, which I feel really makes an effort to, to bring people in and to do an outreach. So even before 2015, when Saudi Arabia was still largely seen as this enclosed space, um, the, there were so many ideas and concepts flowing in and out of Saudi Arabia. And I mean, of course, this idea that Saudi Arabia is this enclosed space is is ironic given that it is um, that it is the place uh, for pilgrimage of millions of people who go every year and think of all the um, all the foreign labor in the country, which are again millions who go in and out. Um, but when it comes to ideas um, and practices, I think that the war on terror has had a really detrimental effect on Saudi charities because, as you say. Um, from then on, Islamic charity all over the world was seen as um, alms, giving alms for jihad. Um, and this has had the effect in Saudi Arabia of, of following 9-11, uh, um, that the state made an effort to monitor cash flows in alms and donations. And it wasn't the first time that the state tried to do that. There were similar initiatives already in the 1980s and in the, in the 1990s, as I point out. But in the wake of 9-11, really, the, the pressure of the international community gave these state efforts to monitor and to, to regulate more legitimacy. And the state used that to, to dominate and control what was going on in, uh, in this rather autonomous um, area or autonomous space. So when it comes to, um, to, to questions of autonomy in civil society, the war on terror was, was detrimental, but it was also detrimental when it comes to the poor and, and those beneficiaries of aid. Um, I wanna give you an example. The state banned in 2003, the state banned 
um, cash flows. So before you would see particularly at mosques uh, boxes where, um, where initiatives would collect alms and then pass them on to the, to, to the poor and needy inside Saudi Arabia and outside of Saudi Arabia. But the state banned this. Instead, uh, donations then, following 2003, were only allowed if they were uh, transferred electronically. And the same for the organizations, the same for charities. Charities were, in theory, no longer allowed to give cash money to the poor and needy. Now, this is ironic because when we look at the, the poor and needy in Saudi Arabia, we see that many of them actually lack uh, bank accounts, um, particularly women and female-headed households who, were, uh, who always have been among the major beneficiaries of, uh, of these organizations that deal with the poor because of the many limitations uh, imposed on women and um, um, female-headed households and women were really among the beneficiaries of these organizations who were no longer allowed to give them cash money. So how to transfer um, the money to them? So what I follow the first women's welfare organization in, in one of my chapters and what they came about doing is they, um, they gave the beneficiaries vouchers. And again, I think what it shows is that they, they gave them vouchers because how they understand the zakat or alms in general is that this is money that is really for the beneficiaries and the beneficiaries should choose what to do with the money. And, that, and there's this trust that the beneficiaries, they will know how to use the money best in each individual case. Um, and this goes against, you know, more, um, development-oriented approaches that seek to, to use alms and donations uh, to empower um, the poor. And I say empower here in a very ironic way, uh, to offer training programs, etc. But again, I mean, this notion of giving, giving the poor money and then to say, you know best what you need to do with this money, um, is something that has been uh, almost impossible in the wake of the war on terrorism. And I, I make my second answer short. Um, Vision 2030. Um, so I did two more rounds of fieldwork after the NGO law was um, it came about in 2015 because I felt that it really reconfigured um, the field of charity. So I went uh, to do a fieldwork once more in 2019, and then in 2020, I spent I did two trips um, and spent. Uh, January until March uh, in the country. And, you know, I'll, I'll, there are the NGO law and Vision 2030 brought radical change in some areas, but I think um, other dynamics are still the same. So with this, I mean, you still have some organizations who are in favor and some who are highly critical of these developments. So you have some organizations like the Majid Society, which really um, changed its programs and readapted and is very much in line with Vision 2030. And you have other actors who are more, who are more critical um, of current developments. And I think what it really showed to me that my 2020 fieldwork is that this diversity of voices and the creativity with which people navigate, um, navigate the space, it is still there. Let me uh, ask you a question that comes from uh, our participants and actually from a, a colleague, Asif Shuja, who's a senior research fellow at the Institute. And his, uh, his question, uh, the 2.5% of wealth that Saudi Muslims are required to give away annually as mandated by Islam, how much of that is spent as domestic charity and how much of that is sent outside of Saudi Arabia? Are there any restrictions by the Saudi Authority on sending that money outside of the country and to which destinations? So first of all, when it comes to numbers, I would always caution everyone. I mean, there are statistics, but I think we, we, we should be realistic. We really don't know. So when you ask me how much is going where, we don't know. 
that that is my and I, I give a lot of statistics in the book um, and I look very critical at them. Um, but to make a long story short, I think we have to be really careful. Um, what we what did happen though in 2015, one of the first measures um, that King Salman took, who himself as the king has a long record of um, of supporting Muslims around the world um, in human you know with humanitarian aid initiatives. Um, one of the first measures that he took was to create the King Salman Center for um, for humanitarian aid. And I actually I have an article. Um, out in the book uh, Wahhabism and the World, edited by Peter Mandeville, that looks at the effects of the King Salman Center. Because what, what the Salman Center did is it mandated by royal decree that all donations that go abroad nowadays, they have to go through the King Salman Center um, electronically. So Saudis are no longer allowed to send money abroad um, through other ways and means. Again, I would say there is there are these official decrees, and then there are the on the ground um, ways of, of handling these things. For example, even still in 2020, I um, when I interviewed and um, I was in organizations and with people, I still saw um, um, money being handed in envelopes to heads of organizations, and they passed on these envelopes to to the beneficiaries. Um, and of course, I am not able to mention who, who that is in the, in the book because it, um, I think it speaks to the high level of trust that, that I earned over the years that people were not afraid to, to show that these practices were going on. Um, but the state would not approve. Um, and I think, I think what we see here again is in the wake of um, the 2015 changes, uh, the NGO law, King Salman Center for Humanitarian Aid, um, Vision 2030, we see more and more institutionalization um, of charitable practices and um, also more and more ways of navigating these limits imposed by the state. Let, let me ask you uh, another question, which uh, here relates to um, uh, identity. And, um, and I think this is a, a, also a theme that comes back uh, regularly in the book. As you said at the beginning, this is a, a book about everyday Islam in Saudi Arabia. And uh, we see in details how uh, Islam is um, is sometimes used uh, here uh, as an element uh, to justify uh, some social policies. Uh, at the same time, one thing that uh, we've been discussing in other webinars and that you discuss also in the book is this new phenomenon over the last uh, five, 10 years of uh, a new form of national, what we could call some kind of Saudi nationalism. Uh, how, how do you see that uh, evolution and how do you see this uh, new form of uh, identity in uh, Saudi Arabia? Again, given the fact that you've been traveling to the region uh, and to the to the, the country over the last decade, did you see that uh, that uh, evolution in terms of how pe the people you were interviewing were uh, talking about their own uh, mission, uh, how they they were justifying their own uh, actions, uh, how this potentially evolving identity of Saudi Arabia impacted uh, the people that you were meeting? So I, I would actually say that it is not really something new brought about by Vision 2030. Um, it was already there in 2009, 2010, um, because during the floods, for example, I, people I interviewed, they said, uh, we help, we have an obligation because we are Saudi. And I think the sense of being Saudi and being Saudi with pride um, is something among the young generation, the middle class, upper class, um, young generation has been there for, for quite some time. And I think it also, it goes against the stereotypical ideas um, that people have of Saudi Arabia. Um, I think it is some, some kind of counter reaction um, to, to confront um, what, they perceive as a misrepresentation um, 
on on the other hand, I think nowadays there is a state, of course, there is a state fostered um, agenda. Um, the National Day celebrations are, I think, a good example because already in 2009, 2010, they were tolerated, but they they still went against um, official norms, but they were happening. And I mean, nowadays it is just a, a state-sponsored huge party in the country. Um, so yeah, it does. I think it does speak, it, it is a global trend nowadays that these um, notions of nationalism um, are stronger and it is something that we see, it comes, um, it has its cost, um, but it is not something that was brought about by, um, by the current leadership. When I speak of the current leadership and the state, there is one thing that I wanted to, to add, which goes back to what Jesse said. Um, and also when I say, you know, the state in the wake of 2015, it has done this and that. But I, in the book, I'm, I actually make a point that we have to be really uh, careful and we should really self-critically reflect on what we mean when we say the Saudi state or the Saudi government, the Saudi regime. Most of the time, especially analysis that uses the term the regime is, I, I think, really poor. Because I would, I would look at it like this. This, this state has really three tiers um, that are at work. You have the regime, which is the leadership, what I call the leadership, the decision-making circle. Um, and then you have the royal family, and we should not think that they are identical, because the royal family nowadays consists of, I think, 15,000, 20,000 members. And just being a royal doesn't mean that one has political influence. And I, I follow more recently established um, uh, uh, associations that were brought to life by royals. And I show how they struggle. They struggle to register. Um, because you have, and that's the third uh, tier, the bureaucratic state. And the bureaucratic state uh, has grown stronger and stronger. And you have between the three, the royal family, the bureaucratic state, and the regime, you have within them different opinions. So the bureaucratic state, you might encounter, you have different ministries, you have within one ministry people who have different opinions and they, they try to, what they say, they try to change the system from within, or they try to implement their ideas of how they think um, this is best, something is best done. So when we say, there's, there was an implementation of the 2015 NGO law and the state did it. Then again, how even individuals that work within the state view it and view its impact and want to see it implemented can be sometimes very, very different. And again, it speaks to the diversity that we see in, in Saudi society, which we also see when it comes to the state. So we should be very, very careful not to generalize when we say, there is society and it's diverse, and then there is the state which has um, a certain view or agenda. Thank you very much. We have uh, another question uh, from uh, Clemens Shea, who's a, a research fellow at uh, the Middle East Institute. Uh, here is his uh, question. Uh, in your fieldwork experience on the ground, what is your main takeaway on how Saudis negotiate between their personal faith and state religion? Uh, and to go further, if and where is there uh, disagreement with uh, state policies? How is that manifested in uh, their uh, associational uh, life? So in uh, the life of uh, uh, the charities that you, uh, you cover. Uh, and another uh, question to that is, is there, uh, is this pushback, if any, uh, quietest uh, in nature? Um, so personal faith, state Islam, one of my empirical findings which struck me the most was um, the fact that Saudis, in, particularly in interviews, they rarely mention um, uh, scholars, you know, the, the so-called religious authorities. Um, when I, so when I went to organizations and I interviewed, I asked, for example, questions like, so what do you consider the zakat? What do you do with the zakat? And how do you determine what to do with it? Who, who do you get zakat? And how do you determine, is he or she 
uh, eligible or not. And then what they did is they recited a verse from the Quran and they told me there is um, here the poor and the needy, they're one of the categories. And um, in my understanding, this person is poor and in need. And sometimes it, it, these legitimizations became really complex because they, they showed that they really, they really knew their turf, they really knew their religion and their, their interpretation, their practices were really guided by an intense reflection all over these categories and notions and verses and over the scripture over many years. Some of the, particularly the philanthropists who were of older age, you know, this, the generation 50 plus, 60 plus, you could really show once they had established a foundation or an association or engaged with it, and they interpreted a particular verse, they, they did so not out of the moment because I happened to be interviewing them, but because they had been reflecting and asking themselves these questions for a long time. And I was, I was struck, you know, that they did not um, just say, you know, there's this religious uh, authority. He is the, uh, the sheikh, the, the head of the ulama, and, and he decreed this and that, and that's why we do it or we do it not. Because when we look at the materials of these organizations, they do include passages, fatawa, um, where particular people say this is the correct use of, of alms and, and donations. But I, there, I really saw a discrepancy between, um, uh, between interviews and texts of the organizations, and even more so when it came to, to women. Sometimes I was really, um, I was really struck how uh, women volunteers were really interpreted themselves um, women philanthropists, and where sometimes even they did not know certain certain ulama who I thought were really well known, and I give some examples in the book where I kept I kept asking so who but according to whom are you allowed to do this? And then for me they tried to dig in and they came up with some names and then they themselves didn't know who these ulama were because they it didn't matter to them and their own approach to to Islam which was much more um direct um based on scripture um so to give you an example where this what i call the the moral compass which they find in islam in the religion and um state policy contradicted is this question of um who deserves aid and you have volunteers and philanthropists social workers who say islamically speaking um any muslim in the land of islam is eligible and they say, Islamically speaking, any human being who is in need, if that is a Muslim or a non-Muslim, but if that person is in need, then he or she deserves aid. And they are not asking the poor when they, when they encounter someone who is in a really desperate situation. And we are talking here really of poor people, of people who suffer. And when they approach an organization, they, they help them and they do not ask them for their papers. And this, of course, obviously goes against um, the values of the nation state who demands, increasingly demands and pushes um, that only people with, with papers, only Saudi citizens, um, or at least people with an iqama, that's what I mean when I say papers, um, deserve aid. And you see that over the course of the last decade, particularly um, since 2015, uh, deportations are happening more and more, and the state has really made an effort to, to rid itself of whom uh, the state sees as non-legitimate uh, people in, uh, in the country. Very quickly, because uh, we have uh, one minute left, so I'll uh, have the last question, uh, which is, have you traced any charity associations linked with the Sahwa movement? Uh, and particularly with clerics that since 2015 have been uh, directly harassed by regime officials. Uh, so, and I believe if I remember correctly, this is a topic that you covered in uh, parts of the book. Uh, so can you? Yeah, so I would recommend um, uh, reading the first, like the second chapter, the first case study, uh, which deals with the first Women's Welfare Association, how it evolved over time. Uh, there I speak about the Sahwa and their engagement with it. 
Thank you. That's a fantastic uh, answer to uh, to uh, basically say uh, buy the book to know more. Uh, and <laughs> I'm sure uh, Cambridge University Press uh, will be uh, will be uh, happy. But uh, indeed, I mean, uh, and I think if there is one conclusion, uh, it is definitely that we highly recommend to uh, to read this book uh, for all the reasons that uh, we covered uh, here. Unfortunately, we have to stop here, uh, but. Uh, let me say, uh, on behalf of uh, the, the Middle East Institute, congratulations, uh, Nora, for, for this book, uh, which is again available at Cambridge University Press. Thank you very much also, Jesse, uh, for joining us uh, in, in the middle of uh, your uh, academic uh, schedule. Uh, and uh, we um, thank you also to our listeners for their questions and for attending uh, this uh, event. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Jean-Louis. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great.